Bible, please open up to Jonah chapter 2. We'll make our way there in a few minutes. Um, This morning, as we're looking at Jonah 2, we're going to be looking at one of the most beautiful psalms of repentance in the Bible. Um, And yes, I said psalm. I didn't misspeak here. Some of you might be aware of this. Some of you might not be. But a psalm does not have to be included in the book of Psalms in order to be a psalm. Uh, It's this poetic refrain of devotion that we see here in Jonah. Very much lines up stylistically with the writings that we see in the Psalms. I want to share something as we get into the word on a kind of personal note. Over the last few months of studying Jonah, and the last two weeks of preaching in particular, Jonah has become one of my favorite people in the Bible. I feel like I get this guy. Remember last week how I talked about how many commentators judge Jonah's repentance and whether he's truly authentic about it or not. I just want to admit to you that I certainly was one of those people. I looked at Jonah's stank attitude at the beginning of chapter 1, the way that it was reflected again in chapter 4, and thought, how could this prayer of repentance that we're about to look at in chapter 2 honestly be authentic if he's that far off by the end of the book? He's obviously a phony, so therefore the theme of the book must be God using Jonah in spite of Jonah. And that would be a perfectly biblical theme, the idea of God using us in spite of ourselves. A funny thing happens, though, when you start to get a little bit older and hopefully start to get a little bit more life under you. Not everything is as black and white as it was when you were younger, which is funny that I'm saying that because I would have called you a flaming liberal if you said that 10 years ago. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, But I just thought you either saw things black and white or you didn't believe in truth. Sort of the way that I tackled things in my fundier days. But in the midst of my fundamorphosis, hopefully that's uh, changing. Anyway, hopefully you'll grow a little less judgmental the more that you learn to grow and step with the Spirit. I think what really grabbed me was, as we looked at last week, Jonah's major sin was saying no to the Lord. God commissioned Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah decided to say no. So I started to look at the commissions in the Bible. And I thought about Jonah's commission that we see back in chapter 1, verse 2, that says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. And then I thought about our commissioning by Jesus in Matthew 28. And it says, And Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So Jonah's commissioning was really relatively short. 
compared to ours. His commandments were simply, get up, go to Nineveh, call out against them. Those are the only commandments in that commission. That's it. It's really straightforward. It all starts to go downhill in verse 3, once the words, but Jonah, enter the equation. I've preached through Ephesians and did an entire sermon on the beauty of the terms, but God, and just how precious they are anytime they enter into a text. The opposite could be said anytime you see, but insert your name into the equation. Anytime it's God commanded, but Jonah, but Eric, but whoever you would like to include downhill, right? Our commission, on the other hand, we're told that all authority belongs to Jesus. Since he had all authority, we're told to go make disciples of the one who had all authority. Like Jonah, we're also called to get up and go. We're called to teach them to obey. We're called to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we're given the additional promise that he's with us the whole time as we go. And then we know from the end of the story that we're also indwelt with the living spirit of our God. That's pretty straightforward. But unlike Jonah, I've never had to go and preach the gospel to a people group who is committing genocide against my people. I've never had to go and preach the gospel to a people who very well might kill me as a result. Maybe someday I will, but up until now, that has not been the case. For the most part, unlike Jonah, I actually like the people that I've been called to go and preach the gospel with. In most instances, I even love the people that I'm called to go and preach the gospel with. But check this out. Sometimes I just still don't do it anyway. I don't have to go across a gigantic desert to go and preach the gospel. But if I'm honest, I'm not always willing to go across my gigantic street on Spruce Drive. Unlike Jonah, I actually want to see the people that I'm preaching the gospel to repent, be saved, and receive the grace of our God. Yet Jonah did not want to see these people repent, yet goes and preaches to them anyway. And often Christians who hold prayer meetings claiming that they want to see people repent, refuse to go. Yet Jonah's the one who gets judged for having a bad attitude. Even though in our passage this morning, he's going to say things like, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. When I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer went up before you in your holy temple. With a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I will repay what I have vowed to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as I looked at Jonah's commission, and then I looked at mine, I looked at all of the reasons that Jonah had not to go, and then considered the zero reasons that we have not to go. Then I looked at Jonah's broken response, and I considered how cold my response can sometimes be. And then I looked at Jonah's prayer, and I looked at how lifeless my prayers can be. And it made me wonder why it's Jonah who history remembers being the unfaithful missionary with a bad attitude as I contemplated all of these things. 
this morning, I want to look at what happened after he said no to God's commission, where his heart was, how he got there, how he ended up back in the place of intimacy, worship, and mission. I want to focus on the gift of repentance that got him there and how he went from rebellious to repentance along the way. Said more succinctly, this morning we're going to look at Jonah's prayer and we're going to examine the gospel motivation and how right motives fuel right mission. And I pray that it hits your heart the way that it did mine. I'm going to actually ask the Lord just that. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be wrecked afresh this morning. I pray that as we look at Jonah's repentance, that those who need to be led to repentance would be. I pray that as we look at the call to mission, that we'd be fueled to be missionaries. Lord, I pray that we would be fueling with the gospel. It's your name we pray. Amen. So the first step to seeing Jonah's way to repentance, or the first step on Jonah's way to repentance, is actually regret. You're actually able to see regret several places in this chapter. If you go back and read chapter 4, back into chapter 2, you might doubt the sincerity of it, I suppose. Or if your exposure to Jonah is the VeggieTales movie, and you watch the end of the movie and read it back into the beginning, then you might doubt his sincerity, I suppose. Seriously, who reads a book like that? When's the last time you read a book backwards? Unless you're Hebrew, then the answer is none of you, man. Maybe some Arabic folk up in here, but I, I don't know. You don't read books backwards. You read front to back, just like I do. Or maybe cheat and read the chapters you don't want to read. But there's, you see regret in statements like verse 4 where he says, with me, he says, but then again I'm driven away from your sight. Imagine becoming aware of your sin in our context and saying, I'm driven away from being able to even sense the presence of our God, since we know that the presence of God no longer resides in temples or buildings made with human hands. It's also like saying, man, I just want to feel your presence again. And in verse 7, it says that it's while his life was fainting away that he remembered the Lord, not in a time of prosperity, not when he was content in forgetting the Lord. It was when his life was fainting away and full of regretful decisions that he remembered the Lord. I mean, he done messed up. And he knew it. Regret has kind of become the whipping boy in gospel-centered theology. People speak of regret as if it's some sort of bad thing. And that poor understanding of regret comes from 2 Corinthians 7.10 where it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It says that regret is moved, removed after repentance. But nowhere does it say that there should not be regret. Let me put it to you this way. True repentance should be more than regret but it certainly shouldn't be less than regret. Hear me on that. True repentance should be more than regret. It certainly should not be less than regret. If repentance is real, it should at least include some aspect of Think about it really practically like this. Think about when you're training up your kids when they do something wrong. What do you say? Are you sorry? 
them what you've done. And if they looked up with you with those precious little brown eyes and said, Mama, I have no regrets. I've repented. Whether to hug them or slap them. <laughs> I don't know how you'd handle that. How can you repent if you've never felt the sting of regretting what you've done? The idea of regretless repentance has been one of the most careless, destructive, non-biblically grounded teachings to hit the church in the last hundred years. I'm going to get a little bit theological with you guys for a second, but people who make stupid arguments about being able to have repentance without regret usually try to sound smart in order to cover up their tracks and try to fool you into believing what a stupid theology they're putting forward. Or they try to theologize away their responsibility or remorse. This view actually originated from an overly actualized understanding of our position in Christ, and it's led people to believe that they can repent without any regret if they even have a view of repentance at all. I remember calling out a brother years ago who was in the midst of some blatant, and when I say blatant, I mean like in your face, super duper, ain't no two ways about it, this sin is sin kind of sin. And I'll never forget what he told me. I finally mustered up the strength to go and confront this brother on his sin. And he said, look, God doesn't see what I'm doing as sinful because he sees me positionally perfect in Christ. I can remember my exact words. They were so theologically precise. I said, are you nuts? Do you really believe the garbage that you're spewing? You might be standing positionally complete in Christ, but right now you're standing in my front lawn. And I'm telling you, you best get the step in. Because this just ain't going to fly, man. You are going to hear right now the closest thing that you'll ever hear to me saying anything negative about the doctrine of justification, which is my favorite doctrine in the whole Bible. But if you point to the fact that you've been justified and already forensically declared not guilty as a way of avoiding feeling regret or remorse, you're abusing the doctrine of justification. And it's become so prevalent. One of my theological heroes, and this is why you don't make heroes out of men, just fell. And this was the backbone of his teaching. Just ignoring the sanctification passages in the Bible, being so hyper-focused on justification, and doing it all under this fictitious banner that he called grace, all the while abusing the doctrines of grace. Do that long enough, somebody might tap you on the shoulder and ask you to become a pastor of a megachurch. I mean, anytime I've had deep repentance, it's always come with a strong, stinging feel of regret. It's like putting your hand in the fire. You're not supposed to forget what that feeling feels like. You think Jonah regretted the whole storm, drowning, living in a fish situation. But then you begin to see some signs of life emerging, and he begins to get real with this situation. Look with me at verses 1 through 5. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. 
and you heard my voice, he has no misnomers about how bleak his situation is. The belly of Sheol, Sheol was the Hebrew concept for hell, and he's saying, I am in the pits and the doldrum and the depths of hell, and it's out of this place that I cried to the Lord, for you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and the waves and billows passed over me. This is both true, factually, and metaphorically. He's saying, and just the waves of what I have done are just washing over me, and I'm drowning in the midst of it. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sights. What a hard reality to say. He's saying, I'm, I no longer feel as if I'm in your presence. I no longer can sense the presence of my God. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He's just longing for it. Yeah, I had this opportunity the whole time. Lord, just give me the opportunity that I blew. I could have gone back and forth to your holy temple day and night anytime I wanted to. And now all I'm asking for is the opportunity that I always used to have that I took for granted when I had it. Waters closed in over me. They took my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Look, it doesn't get much more real than seaweed was wrapped around my head. I remember when I was in rehab. I don't know why people do this, man. But people love to have spitting contests about just how awesome their sin was. Like, you know what? You think you're bad? I was living on the streets of New Orleans. I remember saying that to somebody. They were like, I think that's bad. I was living under a bridge in Harlem. You think that's bad? My sin took me to living on an ice patch naked in Siberia. You know, it's like people just want to prove my sin makes me more of a bad dude than yours. Jonah is kind of like the guy in Brian Regan's Moonwalker skit, if you're familiar with it. If you're not familiar with it, he jokes about how when you go to a party, there's always some me monster sitting right there next to you, right? That just wants to talk about, hey, look, me, my, me, 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 And he wishes, he says, I wish I could have been one of those 12 people that walked on the moon. So that while you're bragging about driving your new Beamer on the Autobahn, you can say, I do remember driving in my lunar rover on the sea of tranquility. All of a sudden, just with a, I walked on the moon. The floor is yours, oh moonwalker. <laughs> Jonah could have easily been like, you think you're stored back? Like seaweed wrapped around my head. As I was living in the belly of a fish, and I had chewed up fish and plankton particles in my beard. That's where my sin took me, if we're going to brag about such things, because that makes sense, bragging about how cool your sin was. That's pretty real, man. This guy is getting gritty. I have never understood the concept of why a Christian would not get real. I don't get it why somebody would choose to come and put on mask. I really don't get it. Stoicism is not a gospel value. You understand that? Walking around stoically like you're unaffected just means that you probably have a hard heart. 
the church is supposed to be a community where people can come in and get real. And if you refuse to get real, you're harming yourself, but you're also harming the authenticity of this community. Who knows if somebody's dying to get real, but by putting on a mask and wearing a plastic facade, if that causes them to just take that thing that they wanted to release and just stuff it down even deeper. And I get it, man. Some people have been hurt by being intimate with others. So have I. Look, I've been stabbed in the back by the people that I've shared the most intimate stuff with and I thought were some of my closest friends. It's happened publicly. It's happened shamingly. And it's happened more than once. And man, does it hurt. It really hurts when it's at the hands of other Christians, right? It gives you that feeling of, why bother? Like, if, if this is the church, I can get that out in the world. If, if, if Christians are going to do this to me, my atheist friends treat me better than that. So I get how it could cause wounds to develop. But we can't just say, just because I've been hurt, I will never allow myself to be hurt again. We can't just sit in the corner and lick our wounds and be afraid of ever sharing anything that's intimate with somebody else because we're afraid that that person might turn around and hurt you. C.S. Lewis once famously said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything with your heart. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure to keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be people tell me that sometimes I can be a little bit too real or a little bit too raw in some of the things that I share. I don't care. Um, secondly, I say there's a course correction for all of the pastors and churches out there who are afraid to get their hands dirty. I see the fact that God sent me as a gift to the church because he knew that I am the biggest screw-up that could possibly be standing in this pulpit. He didn't put me here because I'm better than any of you. He put me here because I'm worse. I'm okay with that today. There are too many plastic, artificial settings in Christianity, and they need to be smashed with authenticity. They need to be broken, man. And if I can assist that by making a fool out of myself in the name of Jesus, amen. If the worst that can come out of it is somebody that they decide to judge me for being a little bit too raw or authentic, that's your problem, man. That's not mine. But if what comes out of it is that I'm able to keep my heart soft and guard it from becoming callous and impenetrable and give somebody else the courage to do the same, I will gladly risk somebody judging me every time I open my mouth in order to keep my heart soft and to encourage you to do the same. If you can't get real, it makes me wonder if you even understand how much your sin stinks. 
how badly you're in need of a Savior. Look, I'm not talking about bearing your sin publicly in every single public setting. That's, that's not authenticity. That's, that's mental illness. I'm talking about a willingness to get real with the Lord and with someone you trust. As James says, confess your sins to one another and be healed. Look, if you never take the time to get real with your struggles with another brother or sister in Christ, you are robbing yourself and you're robbing that other person. It's going to take a toll on your heart if it isn't already. I'm preaching to you private person who thinks that your privacy is some sort of spiritual attribute and who uses that as a crutch to not share the reality of your sin with another brother or sister in Christ. I'm talking to you. If you're here, you know who you are. The Spirit's already named you. Let me ask you, why would you be afraid to get in any and every situation. Honestly, that's not a rhetorical question. I mean, well, I guess it is rhetorical because I don't expect you to all answer me at the same time. Uh, that, that would get awkward. But uh, why would you be afraid to get real in any and every situation? Seriously, what do you have to lose? The only thing you have to lose is not holding shame inside any longer. That's not a loss. That's a gain. That's a gain for you. That's a gain for the kingdom. Let me encourage you. If you're here, you can get real in this place. We are all a bunch of knuckle-dragging sinners in this room. And anyone who doesn't think that they are is probably in even deeper trouble and an even bigger sinner than they think. Do you know what? Jesus said that he came for the sick. So if you can't confess that you're sick, then by extension, you're saying that Jesus didn't come for you, right? I'm not making that up. Jesus said that. He said, I didn't come to call the healthy. I'm not here for them. The sick are the ones who are in need of a doctor, not those who are healthy. So if you're well, you have no need for a Savior, right? You must be your own Savior, right? But if you're a sickie, Welcome to Redeemer Fellowship. I mean that. From the bottom of my heart, you're in the right place. I'd love to call this Sicky Local Dragon Center Fellowship, but that's a little bit long for a website URL, isn't it? Next, you see the beauty that he recalls the sweetness of pastimes of worship. This is a big part of the difference between gospel-centered repentance and shame-based repentance. I thought that he had regret, but check it out. If I left it at that, that wouldn't be the gospel. It wouldn't even be Christianity. Anyone can feel regret or sorrow. People that don't feel regret or sorrow, there's actually a name for that. They're called sociopaths. Uh, that's not a joke. That's look up in a textbook. Somebody who is just seared to where they can't feel regret or sorrow is a sociopath. But that's not enough. Jonah is fueled by missing something. Look again at verse 4. He says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
Skip down to verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came out to you into your holy temple. He misses those times of sweet, sweet fellowship with the Lord. That's what he's saying to him. He's saying, I remember that. I want that again. I miss how beautiful it felt when I was just living life in the presence of my God. I miss the intimacy and authenticity of that worship. Have you ever been there? Were you even stuck in sin? Were you even stuck in mediocrity? Were you even stuck in a direction that is not the Lord's best for you? Were you stuck in a season where worship is not your highest priority? And if you were to be honest with yourself, you know that you rank way higher on the list than Jesus does in terms of how you set your priority list. You ever been there? And then all of a sudden, instead of feeling this flood of condemnation come in, you feel this longing of missing something. Ever remember the sweetness of intimacy, of deep, deep worship in those seasons? Is anybody there now? And take a moment and reflect on what Jonah did. And then he's brought to his senses Coming to his senses means he misses those times of worship. And he's fueled by worship. This whole change is being brought about because, oh, do I miss those times of worship? Do you ever just reflect back on those super-duper intimate times of worship? Or remember those times when the Lord just saved me, and I wasn't Pastor Eric. I was barnacle-scraping Eric, working in a boatyard. And, man, it was just dirty work, but I longed for my lunch hour, not because I didn't want to work, but because I would go find a boat, and I would get down in the hull of the boat and just get on my face before the Lord, and I'd cry out to him and just say, I just want to be with you. I just want to spend this time with you. I can't do this day without being recharged by you. I want to be in your presence. And sometimes I look back on the simplicity of those days. Sometimes when my life gets too complicated, I don't try to make lists and cut off all the things that are complicated. I just remember the times that were more simple. And I think back on the sweetness of Jesus in those seasons. Oh, the sweetness of Jesus really being my everything. The sweetness of being able to experience Him not just in religious settings, like this, but as I'm wearing my Tyvek suit covered in bottom paint down at the bottom of the hull of a ship. I like Jonah. Next point similar, but different enough that it deserves its own point. He remembers who it's all about. Look at Jonah just remembering the Lord. The verses that I just read, again, verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into the holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. I will vow what I pay. Salvation belongs to our Lord. It's fascinating. As he remembers the Lord, 
If you guys get nothing else this morning, you guys seem like a sleepy crowd this morning, I'm going to ask that you wake up, you get this point, because it's just mission critical, this message. This is the takeaway here for you. It's fascinating that as Jonah remembers the Lord, Jonah's eyes are lifted off of Jonah. They're lifted off of his circumstances. They're lifted off of his shame. They're lifted off of his failure. One of the things that makes me most sad, and it just permeates evangelicalism, is these teachings on repentance that forget who it's supposed to be all about. I have sat under some of the harshest teachings of repentance, where people just make you uncover every single rock and look under every nook and cranny as if repentance was supposed to be about you. I remember going to the Lord's table and having condemning preachers that had no business being in the pulpit make it seem as if I was supposed to just sit there and reflect on myself during that time rather than reflect on the goodness of what our God has done. I remember people perverting the gospel and making it as if it's all about you and your sin and sin management. Making things about you is how you got yourself into that problem to begin with. So how are you going to get out of the woods by going the same direction that you went into the woods to begin with? If you got yourself into a situation by making it all about you, try something different. If that's all you get out of here, try something different. That's the essence of repentance. Repentance means, by definition, to turn from to turn from sin, yes, but it's not just about sin. I'm tired of people talking about repentance as if it's all about sin. It's about Jesus. It's about turning yourself from making you the king of your own life and acknowledging that you are not the king and recognizing who is. That's what repentance is all about. Man, I have just set in accountability groups where sin is our king. Sit and just reflect, oh, I sinned this week, I sinned this week too. Oh, I sin in the same manner. Oh, I sin in the same manner that I do every week. Oh, sin, 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 sin. And at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. And that's the only time Jesus was even brought into the conversation is when we ended our time of talking about ourselves for the last two hours. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. I get so sick of hearing that repentance is just a theological exercise in navel-gazing. And I, I was talking to someone recently who was telling me, and this person had degrees, this person had more degrees than Fahrenheit. And they were sitting there talking to me about repentance and holiness. And they told me that holiness means looking at your sin and looking under every rock and staring at you and saying, No! That's not true. It's a lie. Holiness doesn't mean looking at you. Holiness means looking at Jesus. Man, you don't fix unholiness by staring at unholiness. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't even make sense. You fix unholiness by gazing upon the Holy One. That's how it works. And then after repentance, you see something so precious. Forget, you know what? Actually, yeah, forget, forgive me for getting fired up about that, man. But I'm so tired 
of just gospelless repentance. Look, I can be a Muslim and sit around and stare at my own sin. I can be an atheist and sit around and stare at my own wrongdoing. There's nothing uniquely or distinctly Christian about that. The only thing that's Christian is when we attack it with the gospel. When we look at the grace of God and we apply the good news, and that happens by looking at Jesus because we don't apply the gospel by staring at you. And after repentance, he recommits his way to the Lord. In verse 9, it says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I've been to several services where people ask to recommit their life to the Lord. I, I used to teach over at um, a Christian uh, high school. And, and you get these people that, you know, if you play enough soft slow music long enough and you convince a bunch of teenagers that they're worthless for long enough, you're going to get a bang and altar call. And that's what they go for. Hey, you stink. You stink. You stink. But Jesus loves you. Come to the front of the altar so that I can feel fulfilled by your response to my message. And I remember being on the docket with this guy who preached a message like that. And I had my own message prepared. I just couldn't even preach my message. So I had to start my next message by saying, if the only thing that you learn here today is not to listen to that, then you've learned something that is worth applying to your life. It's not repentance. It's not recommitting your way to the Lord. And recommitting your way to the Lord is a good thing. I know people who have made sincere decisions during those times. But let's do it in the right order. Have regret for what you've done. That's okay. And then come to the Lord and remember those times of sweetness of fellowship. Remember those times of worship. Remember His goodness. Remember to worship. Reflect upon the right things. I had a wicked good honor alliteration thing going on there. And then, chapter 3 starts, chapter 2 ends, and chapter 3 starts with a recommissioning. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. I so love that the ESV doesn't say spit. Like, that word vomited is just vomited. Vomited. It's just so much fun to say. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it in the message that I He's recommissioning. It's really cool. This psalm actually reads almost exactly like another psalm of repentance and recommissioning. One of my favorite psalms in the Bible, Psalm 51. Let me just read you a couple verses as I prepare to close. It says in verses 10 through 13, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, if you write in your Bibles, circle that word. If you don't, turn to your neighbor and circle it in theirs. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Notice the order of things. There's this precious repentance. 
he fixes his eyes back on Jesus, then he is reset on God's mission. And notice what else it says. It says that as this is happening, you are restoring to me the joy of my salvation. Repentance is a roadmap to restoration and rejoicing. Repentance is a roadmap to restoration and rejoicing. Oh, what a gift it is. So some application points as we close. If you've wandered, remember those precious times of worship. This was God's encouragement to the church in Revelation chapter 2 when he says, Oh, church of Ephesus, remember from where you've fallen. Repent. Remember those seasons of sweetness. And then rejoice that the Lord has greater things still. Like if I looked back, and only look back those times before those seasons of brand new Christianity down in the hall of a boat. And that was the fullness of the sweetness of my Christianity. That would be a really sad thing. But to know that he has things that are still greater still awaiting me. Oh, the glory of God. Maybe you've been stuck in a sin or a season of lackluster devotion. And you've been wanting to repent. But your repentance has consisted of fixing your eyes on you. I'm going to challenge you. Worship. Fix your gaze on him. Don't fix your issue by staring at your issue. Gaze upon him. And check this out. He says in Philippians chapter 1, I am sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will see it through until the day of Christ Jesus. There may be some here who need to recommit their ways to him. And if you've fallen away and want to rededicate your life, I'm not going to ask for some demonstrative step. I'm going to ask for you to just look to your heart. Do it in your heart. Look, he's the same God that you read about in the prodigal son parable. Turn in his direction and he will run to you. There may be some here who need a recommissioning. The great commission is for all of us, but it starts by fixing your eyes upon Jesus, looking full in his wonderful gaze. You know what? The things of this world are strangely 